Business has only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Peter Drucker. Hi, it's John. You're listening to the Access Potential Podcast. So on the weekend, we ran the first Offline Access Potential Academy live event. It was focused on the first module of the program, which is energy generation, and then coupled with radical idea generation or business innovation work, which basically took up the whole second half or last two-thirds of the day. So it was a completely different event, something I'd never done before, never run anything like this before. You can tell my voice is still a little bit gone. It was intense. It was nonstop six hours. We had movement, we had stillness, and then we had this sort of intense pressure cooker of idea generation or innovation work. My older sister, Joanna, who is GM of innovation for Investor and does a lot of really cool stuff, came up to help facilitate this. And it was like the group got struck by a bolt of lightning. We went through each other's business, we uh, broke into smaller groups and we used some really cool tools to develop some new ideas to expand our ways of thinking. So today is going to be a podcast or an episode where I talk a little bit about innovation and specifically in the context of your business, why you need to innovate and why you probably are not innovating even though you think that you might be. So we exist in business as long as we make a contribution to the broader environment. When we're entangled in our own inner workings, the contribution's not there. So when we're doing our emails, our accounts, all the small things that feel like we're doing work, this busy work, we're not actually contributing to our case to exist or continue to exist as a business. To innovate is to create change, to fix a problem, to bring a solution to a problem that we see in the culture. And again, going back to Peter Drucker, he talks about this and basically the way he relates it is if we think of an organism when the organism is very small, like a fly or a little frog, something like this, most of the resources, most of the energetic resources of the organism go into making sure that the organism can relate with the external environment powerfully. So assessing for threats, looking for food, most of the energy in that size organism goes into this interaction with the external environment. As the organism gets bigger, more and more resources, more and more energetic resources have to go into the internal workings of the organism. So maintaining body temperature, uh, maintaining the function of the brain, um, the type of thinking and problem solving that we do. For us, I think our brain is using like, I don't know, 20% or more. It's a lot of our energy. And this is simply just to exist, simply just to run. So we've got digestion, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that's going on. As the organism gets bigger and we have less surface area, more and our lives are more complex, we have more of this energy that we consume, our food, um, other sorts of energy going into just maintaining. So the same thing happens with the business when we're a freelancer, sole practitioner, uh, independent, we can spend a lot of our energy 
focusing on getting new clients, focusing on solving the problem, going looking outwards. As the organization grows, more and more energy goes into the internal operations. So looking at uh, you know payroll, uh, tax, keeping the business running, emailing. And so we end up with these huge monstrosities of companies or organizations with this immense energy going into just maintaining the operation, just keeping the thing going. And then we also see less relative energy going into innovation or into solving new problems. So the first thing is to be aware of this. So knowing that as we start out, it's going to be a little bit easier, but still not easy. And then as we grow, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to keep innovating, to keep solving new problems, to keep creating new value for the external environment or for the people who we seek to serve. The other problem is that to innovate, we need to make change. We need to make something different. And quite often it's radically different or it can at least feel radically different. And this can be scary. And the problem is, as we've spoken a lot about on previous episodes, is this concept of narrative. So our narrative or our worldview is something which exists, which was created through the accumulation of the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or our entire life uh, of our experience of how we've interacted with the world from the time we were couldn't even speak. Uh, our values, our belief systems, our preferences, our wants, our needs, our desires. What we think, the good, the bad, the dark, the light, all of it coming together to create this lens of how we perceive a lot of the world or the world around us. And the narrative is not fixed. It's constantly changing through new inputs. However, we're also masters at creating patterns, creating habits, creating things that work as this sort of defense mechanism that allows us at one point in time to survive, but now also can get in the way of this concept of change or innovation or of thriving. So this narrative also creates blind spots and creates preferences and biases and belief systems that can have gaps in them. And obviously we know this intellectually when we think about it, there's, I think there's over 26 different cognitive biases, probably more now. So we know that this exists and yet it continues to impact us without our knowing on a daily basis. So it's an interesting area. We have these blind spots. We have this narrative, these blind spots where we're not able to see what it is that we're actually doing at all points in time or what it is that we're not doing and not changing. So before we get stuck in, essentially, we know that to exist in business, we need to be able to make this positive change for the culture. We need to be able to solve a problem. We need to be able to add value. If it's already being solved and the value is already being created, then our chance of survival goes down. So we need to be innovating in order to survive, and we absolutely need to be innovating if we want to thrive. One of my old business coaches talked about this a lot as what he called high quality sameness, which effectively, if you think about it, is a lack of innovation. It's the opposite. And often it can be a a, a feeling of innovation, but a cloaked or masked in this hiding, this 
basically way of doing what's very similar to somebody else and trying to do it a little bit better, trying to put a little bit of a spin on it, some different colors on it, you know, film it with a slightly better camera, put some different music, that kind of thing. However, what's happening really is we're repeating the same thing. And then when we flip to the other side through empathy, we look at the people we seek to serve. When we consider from our target audience's shoes, how are they going to look at us as a business or a practitioner? They're going to be seeing this sameness very clearly. So from our side, from the creator side, it's biased on the fear. It's scarier. It's a lot scarier than uh, what it needs to be. And it feels a lot more different. So it feels like we're innovating a lot more than what we are. And then on the other side, it's a lot more boring than what it seems like it would be. And it looks like the brand or the company or the the practitioner is not innovating at all. And it's basically more and more of the same stuff. All you really need to do is open up your social media whatever that is, scroll through and you'll know exactly what I mean, that it's more and more of the same thing. So the question is, how can we do something completely different or bring something new into our practice, into our business, into our relationships and still solve a problem in a fun, innovative and exciting way for the people that we want to connect with and serve? This is scary. So today I'm going to run through a couple of things that came to mind with this. And we'll look at, for some of them, a couple of solutions and things that you can implement in your business, in your practice, in your relationship, even right now. So the first one is this concept of lock-in. And lock-in, also known as path dependence, is everywhere. Uh, The bigger the organization, usually the more often you see it. However, we have path dependence in our personal lives as well. It's happening all over the place. So when we start, this is the way it works. When we start something new, we get a positive result, okay? So I'm tying my shoes, and the first time I tie the shoes when I'm little, I finally make the bow. I wrap the little bunny through the hole or whatever the drill was. I make the bow. I get a... Pat on the back, good job, you tied your shoes. This is a positive result from doing the the process. This is declared consciously or subconsciously as good practice. That's step one. Step two, we repeat this a few times. So we practice it. I tie the shoes a few more times, maybe six times, maybe 50 times. This proves to be a good process. I can tie the shoes now more and more, better and better. The same thing keeps working, so I'm going to keep going. Good practice becomes what's called proven practice. Step three, once it's proven practice, it becomes the way we train a newcomer. So it becomes the way that we teach somebody else. Now it's become organizationally preferred practice. Okay, And from here, we have lock-in. Step four is lock-in or path dependence. So the problem is that when we have path dependence, we may have something which is working at this point in time, even 10 years from now. However, it's curbing innovation because we have a blind spot. We're not, we're going through a process without 
recognizing that there could be capacity or scope for change. It could be capacity to think differently, to think laterally, to change the ceiling of possibility, even if it's tying the shoes. Maybe there's a faster way to tie the shoes. Maybe there's a way that's more fun to tie the shoes. Maybe there's a way to tie two shoes at once that we can't see because we're focused on doing one at a time. There's lots of different possibilities, lots of different things that might come up. So path dependence is born from the search for efficiency, the search for effectiveness, the search for 1% better every day. Every day. However, it's flying in the face of change, it's flying in the face of innovation. So the first thing we do with lock-in is to identify it, to understand that we're running it, it's going on at the moment, how you're using email, how you're using social media, how you're running your business, how you're running staff meetings, how you're looking for clients. You have a process and the process, similar to a narrative, you have a narrative, a way of thinking. The process or the way of thinking is serving something. It's serving a task. There's a trade going on and it's working or it has worked in the past. The problem is that lock-in, that way of being, that way of existing carries energy and it carries momentum. That momentum curbs innovation, stops us from looking beyond, looking into something new. So if one thing we can do is identify lock-in or path dependence. Number two, we can bring in people from the bottom or the top or the middle, all different levels of the business, people who deal with a customer face-to-face, people who deal with product design or service design, people who deal with accounts, uh, people from you know other areas of the organization together and we can go through some some uh, tactics or ways of um, some looking at breaking part dependence, talking about part dependence, talking about what's working, what's not working, but bringing effectively different minds together, different experiences and different narratives together to hash this out. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The next one, the first one is lock in. Next one, why you're not innovating, uh, even though you think you are, is that your business is new. And this makes a lot of sense. You're just starting out. You want to open a gym, you want to become a coach, you want to be a trainer, whatever it is. So you look across and you see what someone else is doing and it's proven. And this makes sense. It seems like it's safer to do what seems to be working in the industry and just try to do it a little bit better. So someone down the road is doing something, let's do that as well. In 1980, Simon Anderson invented the three-fin set up on a surfboard. This is called a thruster. Before that, it was one fin and two fins. So it's a big difference to go from one to two to three. And culturally, it's flying in the face of the status quo, what exists. Up until that point, there were only really two fins. They were called twin fins or fishes sometimes now. So in the early 2000s, Apple built a $500 US, $500 phone. Both of these examples upset the market and there were plenty of haters with both of them. A lot of people just plain thought that they weren't going to work and there was a lot of friction. Both of them upset the market. If your business, and this is why it's scary, because to do something different, in particular when the business is new, is to invite conflict. And we've spoken about this before with change. I did an episode on change. Go back and listen to that if you want. 
to create changes, to create conflict. And this is difficult. This is not easy. So having said that, if the business is new, if you're just starting out, in fact, now, because there's so much opportunity from us as the consumer, we have so many different options to look for when you want to open your business, that there's even more incentive for you to do something differently, radically differently, so that we notice, so that we see, so that we can be part of something fun, exciting, and new. Yes, of course, there's going to be trends. We don't necessarily want to ignore them because they possibly are telling us a little bit about the people we seek to serve and their worldview. But more than just jumping into trends and doing things the same is to identify who those people are that you want to serve and the change that they want to make. And then we can sit down and go, okay, cool. Knowing who it is we want to reach and the problem they got, what radical ideas can we come up with that can help us to do this? So number two, number one was lock-in, path dependence. Number two, your business is new, so there's understandably a fear around this and it feels like the quickest way to move forward is to do things in a proven manner. Uh, whereas really, if we reframe that, the when the business is new, you have less sunk costs, less lock-in, so there's more potential to do something in a vastly different and new way, which is really exciting. That's how we can reframe it from the realm of possibility. Number three, your culture in your business or in your head, really, if it's just a sole practitioner, but your culture is too scary or too hierarchical. So I think that's the right word, hierarchical. You, there's too much of a hierarchy. So when you have a staff meeting, you're coming, bringing everyone together in communion, looking for ideas. What can we do? Does anyone have any ideas? However, we don't recognize necessarily the power of conditioning. Since school, we've been taught to play it safe. A new idea that flies in the face of lock-in or path dependence is risky. It's very risky because path dependence, as we spoke about in the first point, carries momentum, it carries weight. If we bring a new idea out and it's going against something that is working, there's conflict, there's a challenge of belief systems. So if your organization or if you don't recognize this conflict and identify ways to support and encourage people to break through this and present the radical ideas anyway, even though there's conflict, then they're not going to be brought to service, they're going to stay down. So what the result is, is this all goes unsaid. It's happening at a very subtle level. And of course, people think in these situations that they're innovating, but really at a subconscious level, they're afraid to. They're afraid to speak up. They're afraid to be noticed or seen or stand alone, in particular if the idea that they may have is crazy, a little bit out of whack or isn't going to work or someone thinks it might not work. So what they do, what we all do is put out the same ideas that we've seen before and in particular ideas that are a slight improvement or twist on what we've seen our mentors or the heads of the organization do already. 
what ends up happening is signs that this is going on is everyone's dressing the same. They've got the same haircut. They're speaking the same. They think the same. And the language is all the same because everyone has been indoctrinated from the same culture. Everyone's following the same sort of path uh, dependence. And what's going on really is that we have a bunch of signs that everyone is afraid to stand alone. And what we need to do to counter this is to bring in radical diversity. So if you're the owner or the head of the organization or the head of innovation, the question is, how can I bring in something to perturb this situation, to disrupt this linearity of thought, to disrupt this high quality sameness in how we present ourselves and how we interact with the world? So we can use stimulus we bring in stimulus, bring in diversity for stimulus. Maybe this is new people. Maybe this is other forms of stimulus if we don't have people available. Could be someone from outside as a, as a coach or expert in innovation, or the stimulus might be an offsite, but not the same one that you did last year. It might be something completely different. If you normally go to one cafe to have these meetings, go to a bar at nine o'clock at night, go to a theme park, go to the theater, go to a concert. Where can we go to create a new stimulus? And we're going to talk a little bit about this more on a personal level later. Uh, and then finally, again, is to bring in all levels of the business and create a space that's in communion. So if we have the head of the organization, the head of the business, in communion with people who are just starting or the you know the what would be perceived to be the bottom or who are doing the tasks that are um, seen you know from a hierarchical perspective as lower sitting together shoulder to shoulder breathing together in communion in a space that's safe in a space that's shared as humans not as roles so we can play this infinite game together, looking at new possibility, not the finite game of the boss and the employee. When we can do that, then we have permission. We have permission to share, which is where this will come from because we have innovation or thoughts coming from different minds coming together. Okay, now next one is you're not breaking the mold yourself. You probably you know, a year or two, three or four years into the business, you're working way too much, six, seven days a week. You're going to workshops, you're reading books, you're doing things to improve. You're doing more than what, and to grow more than what most people are doing. And that's counting for something. But the most innovative people that I know are breaking this mold of their daily routine with a moment's notice. You know, try a retreat, try on a daily cycle, stop the ordinary flow of events, meditate, go for a long walk, turn your phone onto airplane mode for eight hours, get out, go into nature, break the mold, break the ordinary flow of events because in the ordinary flow of events, of course, we have an ordinary flow of narrative a reconditioning going on in exactly the same way it's gone on for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So if you want to innovate, the first step is going to be to influence shifts in the narrative or to welcome shifts in the narrative, to welcome changes, to welcome nonlinear jumps 
in what we perceive, travel, go to different cities, go to different countries, go to different parts of the same city, interact with different people. The more diverse, the more different we can, uh, different things we can experience, see, do, and feel, the more we're going to be able to generate new ideas for our own business. So the next one is you can't help it. Okay, we're all conditioned by what's working. This is a survival mechanism. We started this when we were tiny, before we could speak. We're pattern recognition machines. But if the problem, the problem is uh, we're also changing, you know, culturally at a rapid pace, and we understand this need for innovation in our business. So the conflict conflict exists because individually we are masters at sameness, and this concept of change is very scary and very difficult. However, as a culture, we're shifting dramatically. If you can think about the last 20 years where we've come from, even the last five years, there's massive tectonic shifts in how we think about what we do, how we act, how we train, how we uh, run our businesses. And so there's this difficulty because at the individual level, we, we simply cannot help it. We can't help looking at things in patterns, looking at things with routine. You know, there's even a whole world developed around habits. And this is flying, innovation flies in the face of habits, the very essence of habit, because we're looking to break down, we're looking to bring the shift from the subconscious repetition to the conscious innovation. So the question is, how quickly can you create a practice to look at who your work is for, look at what you're trying to achieve, and then come up with new ideas? How can you create a practice around the anti-habit, around looking at things with the new eyes, the beginner's mind, a new outlook, a new lens? How can we do this as an individual how can we insert this into our week? Maybe who can we use on our team to help ensure that we're doing this to hold us accountable to this new way of thinking, this new way of coming up with new ideas, this idea generation process. Lastly is you're trying, but you're brainstorming. And really what you need to be doing is what's called brain writing. And some of you have seen me talk about this a little bit. Uh, Lauren Nordgren, hopefully I get the name right, professor at Kellogg, teaches us how brainstorming doesn't really work. Basically, you've got two problems. The first problem is when we get together in a group, we start throwing ideas around, we're all gung-ho on creating new ideas. We've got this cognitive bias, which is called anchoring, which kicks in straight away. Anchoring is when we get in, say we somebody runs an ice cream shop and we talk about new flavors. The first person throws up, usually it's a dominant person as well, throws up an idea around some new types of pistachios. And instantly we have this anchoring around nuts. And maybe the next person talks about, no, no, almonds, salted almonds. Somebody talks about cashews or whatever. We go through different things. And we try to break out of this. We try to bring new ideas in. However, anchoring is present. It's a subconscious 
mechanism. It's, it exists from the very first set of ideas. It may not be the first idea, but the first set, the, fir- the early part of the session will influence the later parts of the session. So that's anchoring. The other problem with brainstorming is that we have what's called uh, domination. So the more energetically or, or um, the more dominant personalities in the room will speak up to 60 to 70% of the time. And this could be two people. And what happens is their intention can be very good in that, okay, let's get this show running. Here's a bunch of ideas from me to get the ball going. And then if other people don't match the tempo, they'll go again, they'll go again, they'll go again. The result is 60 minutes later, uh, for 45 minutes, two or three people out of the whole group are pitching in a bunch of ideas. And obviously, when we go back to the beginning, when the ideas are coming from our own minds, our own narratives, our own experiences, we're not getting diversity. So the alternative to brainstorming is what's called brain writing. And this is a very quiet process. So what we do is we kick off the session and on pieces of paper or your computer, whatever it might be, you write out the ideas. So we have the intent of the session and together we write out in silence and we can still use stimulus. We can use whatever means we need to break out of our own minds, but we might have 10 people writing ideas for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, focusing on quantity. And then what happens is we can share these ideas and we can share them even in an anonymous way. So we can put them on post-it notes, stick them up on the wall. A third party person, a facilitator can collect all the ideas, put them up in random on the wall. And then together we can look at the wall, not knowing who each idea came from or is attributed to. And then what we have is what's called a meritocracy of ideas. So what we've done here is broken down the hierarchy in the group and created a space that's ready for innovation, ready for idea generation, idea development. And from here, we can build on which ideas uh, look good or, or look radical or look fun. And as a group, we can develop this and move forward. So meritocracy of ideas over domination, over one or two people creating ideas. It can feel great to have a couple of people contributing really growing the, the experience. However, what we have is unknowingly created a lack of innovation. So... That's it. If you are obviously innovation, uh, taking action, stepping into the vacuum, as I also like to call it, which is basically stepping into action even when it's not called for, which is very much aligned with innovation, is very, very important to me. It's overcoming fear. It's overcoming resistance. And I guess on one hand, as a business, we can focus on things like social media marketing and Facebook ads, things like this, which of course there is a place for, but on the other case, we can focus on radical idea generation, creating events, creating programs, creating digital assets, creating things which are fun uh, and invigorating, fun to engage in ideas which spread, ideas that people talk about and often can 
not even require any sort of investment besides the emotional investment and labor to carry through this innovation process and put the ideas into place. So something I'm very passionate about and the, the workshop we ran was a lot of fun. We're going to be doing some more of this stuff uh, in some different ways coming up. So looking forward to that. A little bit of a pivot. That's the end of this episode. If you have any questions on innovation or thoughts, send them along, john at johntmarsh.com, and I can address them in the next episode. A little bit of a pivot on this podcast. So you're going to see different episodes of different lengths coming up. You're going to see some really cool guests. And on the guests that I've had in the past, I've made an effort to cap the length of the episodes still around that 20 to 40 minute mark. But some of the episodes, some of the guests that I've got coming up are really cool and have been teachers uh, and even the guests in the past have been teachers for of mine for a long time and have influenced my ways of thinking, a lot of my work, a lot of what I do in different areas of my life. So, To limit the conversation to 20 to 40 minutes doesn't seem fair. So what I'm going to do is just allow those to open up. So you'll see episodes come through five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, 30 minutes, possibly when it's just myself riffing on something like this. And then when I've got a guest on, it could be 60 to 90 minutes, maybe even two hours. We'll see how that goes. Uh, If you got anyone who might be interested in innovation, which is basically everyone, uh, whether it's work, relationship, otherwise, send them along the episode. Very much appreciate the shares and I'll see you next week.